Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. We naturally desire status in this life. No one wants to be picked last, do they? Rarely do we ever see anyone willingly place themselves in a low position. It's a natural desire for us to want to be at the top, and it is ingrained to us very deeply as well. No one wants to be forgotten. At a young age, we absorb the idea that the best place to be is to be the one at the top, to be the one who is in charge. When we're kids, we wanted to be the person in charge in our childhood games, didn't we? Whether it was games of imagination we played with our friends, or whether it was the pickup sports games we played, we all wanted to be in the top spot. In the well-known Hollywood movie, Rudy, there's a scene when Rudy is a child, and he's playing touch football with his brothers in an open field, and and we are brought into their game as we're learning about the childhood story of Rudy. And as we come to that game, we find Rudy complaining about the role that he has to play in their touch football game. He is the younger brother, and he wants to play with the other kids. Likely, he maybe wants to be the quarterback, or maybe he wants to go for a pass and and score a touchdown, but we find out in the story that he has been relegated to that illustrious position of all-time center. Well, nobody wants to be all-time center, and as the scene plays out, we find Rudy dejectedly flipping the ball back to his brothers and standing there while they play the game. Nobody wants to be uninvolved. Nobody wants to be at the bottom. Nobody wants to be the least of these. Nobody wants to be all-time center. As we've been progressing through this story of Jesus that Luke has been unfolding for us, we have been seeing the power and the authority of Jesus. And we get the idea that by his power, he is going to end up being at the top. Because Jesus can heal the sick, he can raise the dead, he can cast out demons. He has even calmed the storm. And you would think that with the way that the story is playing out for Jesus, well, you would think that maybe the guys who follow him might end up with some status. They might end up at the top. You would think following this one who is powerful and mighty, that when he gets to the top, they would get a taste of the fame. They would get a taste of the power for themselves. They would have status. But Jesus keeps on informing these disciples that this isn't going to be the way that things go down. Instead of fame, instead of status, Jesus tells them that he's going to suffer. And while this is plain, and this is simple to understand, the sentence, I am going to suffer, or something along those lines, is very easy to understand. But yet we find that the disciples don't seem to get it. And so once again, we see this morning that Jesus has to remind them of what is coming. And so we look at this passage this morning, and 
We don't have too many verses that we have read that are sitting in front of us, but we're still going to look at three different ideas that come out at us from this passage today. The first one is that we're going to see what I've just mentioned. Jesus needs to remind the disciples what he has been telling them over and over. He is not going to overtake the occupying forces. He's not going to to overtake the religious leaders. He's going to be overtaken by them. And not only are we going to see Jesus making the statement, but we see the lack of understanding that the disciples have about this topic on full display for us. Secondly, we see the disciples arguing about who is the greatest among them. Now, this is an interesting discussion to have. and In fact, it's a little off-putting by the disciples, isn't it? And so we're going to consider how their confusion about the path that Jesus is on distorts how they view themselves and the role that they are going to play in the kingdom of God. And finally, we find a hard teaching from Jesus. Whoever is least is greatest. Now, we're familiar with these types of statements from the Lord, but we're going to dig in and see just how revolutionary this idea is. So with all that lined out, let's get into the passage that we have read from this morning as we look at the end of verse 43. As as we land here, we see this reminder for us of of what what was going on in the first part of verse 43, where we concluded last week. Uh, You'll remember that Jesus came down the mountain after what happened at the transfiguration, and what did he do? He cast an evil spirit out of a young man. We were reminded there that the power of Jesus was not just in the glory on the mountaintop, He also showed his glory in the things that he did. When he came down from the mountaintop to the plain, we were reminded that Jesus has authority over sickness, over evil spirits, over all things. And and we finished there last week with the words, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And we get the idea here that they are rightly in amazement at what Jesus has done but they don't understand what this all means. They, they don't get it. And, and I don't blame the people here. I don't look down on the people and the disciples for not getting this at all. If my expectation was one of conquest, which is a natural thing, one of human achievement, again, something that we expect, I would likely think that the power that I was seeing manifested in Jesus before my eyes was going to be able to provide for me that which I desired. I was going to get what I wanted because I was following Jesus and he's powerful. Hey, he's going to give us what we desire. And this is just natural. Our presuppositions affect how we view things. It's just natural. If, if someone showed the two of us, one of you or all of us, I guess, a, a power tool or a, a new software application we are all going to have a different expectation on what that item is going to do for us. I, I look at a cordless drill, and my lack of carpentry skills thinks that can help me hang a picture on the wall. But some of you can do amazing things with these tools. A carpenter or a woodworker is going to see that tool in a completely different light than someone like me. Our expectations change how we perceive what is in front of us. And as I always remind us, because it is vital to our understanding of the Gospels, 
The problem in front of the Jewish people in Palestine at that time was the occupation of the Roman Empire. They didn't like the Romans, and and so they were consistently looking for deliverance from the Romans. Anyone who would have provided any hope of that becoming a thing of the past, that person was going to grow in popularity very quick. They were going to see this person in front of them, they would have their expectations, and their imaginations would have gone wild. And this isn't just the case for the masses who are marveling at what Jesus is doing here. It's it's true of the disciples as well. And we see this in what Jesus says to his closest followers here, and we find that Jesus doesn't mince words. He says, let these words sink into your ears. Now I'm guessing that you have said something similar to what Jesus is saying here at some point, and And you don't say statements like this without a little provocation, do you? Uh, This is the kind of thing you say when someone just isn't getting it. Or you've told them several times and they aren't doing what you told them to do or they aren't understanding what you're trying to get across. As I've said, we've, we've all done this to someone else, but I'm guessing we also have been on the receiving end of a statement like this. Uh, It's uncomfortable coming to the realization that you're thick-skulled about anything. I can imagine, as Jesus said, let this sink into your ears. The disciples are like, what aren't we getting? Why are we lost here? And so with these forceful words, Jesus continues, and he tells them that the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And again, it's really important that we recall what this phrase, Son of Man, is telling us about Jesus. We're reminded of this regularly. This isn't just a statement that Jesus is the son of a man, that he is a human. The phrase son of man is a messianic term. And so this is a reminder here to the disciples of of what we saw Peter confess a, a chapter or so back. Remember, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the anointed one. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the Holy One of God. They believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, and Jesus, by using this term, Son of Man, is confirming that for them. And so, this idea that they're hearing, they're being reminded that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that all of Scripture promises. They are looking forward to this in sort of their first century ears. What they are expecting of the Messiah, you have to understand, this was a completely contradictory statement for them. The promised one, the powerful, the holy one of God who is promised through all of Holy Scripture, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who is going to destroy the work of Satan, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men? What? How how can this be? be? The the Messiah, the, the Son of Man, should have power over the forces of man. How could they contain him. How could people contain the power of the Son of Man? He calms storms. He heals diseases. He, he casts out demons. But you're telling me a few people are going to stop the Messiah? Whatever. No way. Seriously, that would be our reaction. And ultimately, that's the reaction of the disciples. No matter how succinctly 
Jesus tries to put this for them. They don't get it. And we are clearly told that they don't understand this. In fact, we're told that it's concealed from them. Now, there isn't a clear path of interpretation for us here on on this exact statement, this idea that it's concealed for them. It, It could easily mean one of two things. It could be that God is actively confusing their understanding of what they're being told. Uh, We see this idea not only in the Gospels that this happens, but but in other parts of Scripture. God in his infinite wisdom confounds human wisdom. So that's definitely a valid interpretation. But the other option is that this was concealed from them because they just couldn't fathom the idea of a Savior that would suffer. They have no category for this. Remember, they are on the other side of the resurrection from us. Their idea of victory that the Messiah would win isn't the idea of victory over death. Their idea of victory, as I've mentioned already, is human conquest. Until they see what is going to be accomplished in the resurrection, you could say it would be impossible for them to get a grasp on what is being told to them by Jesus here. I mean, seriously, you and I often miss this point. And we're on the correct side of the resurrection. We're on the other side of the resurrection and ascension. We should get this, and yet we often miss this ourselves, don't we? So I think the next sentence here lends itself to this interpretation that they just can't fathom this because it says that they were afraid to ask him about this saying. They just don't understand, and they don't want to ask. Now, the words of Jesus are obvious. This is clear-cut. They're easy to understand. But these words, in their minds, can't mean what he's saying. The Messiah can't suffer. This, This can't be possible. It's plain, but it can't mean this. Also, let's not underestimate the fact that they probably don't want those plain words to mean what they plainly mean. I mean, it means suffering. It means things they don't like. It's like that bill you get in the mail and you want to avoid opening it because you know it's going to be big, but you don't want to see the number. Kind of like that, right? You know what's in the envelope. You know it's inevitable, but you just aren't ready to deal with it. This could be the mindset of the disciples. They know what these plain words mean, but they don't want to deal with it. But Jesus has made it abundantly clear that this is what's coming. And we see the degree to which the disciples truly don't understand as we see the next story that Luke shares with us. And this is one sentence here, but it tells us so much, doesn't it? Jesus has been the example of humility. He has power beyond compare, but Jesus isn't going around flaunting this power. He can back up these statements about being the Son of Man with the miracles that he performs, but instead of being proclaimed from the rooftops, hey, I just did a miracle here, guys. Your job as the 12 disciples is to go to the rooftops and tell everybody I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Messiah, bring the people to me. That would have been easy to do. It would have been been the understandable thing to do. It's what we would expect. But Jesus is humble. Instead of doing that, he tells his disciples to stay quiet about who he is. 
and the lifestyle that is being modeled in, in front of the disciples day in and day out, it's a, it's a model of humility. Humility, humbleness is who Jesus is, and we are reminded that it is inherent in, in what he has done in the book of Philippians. In, in chapter 2, verse 8, we see this. It tells us that Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of on a cross. Jesus emptied himself. He stooped to us by taking on our flesh. And so what is happening here is is contradictory, not only to the teaching of Jesus, but also to what he personified in his person and work. They are wanting to be great, but Jesus is humble. He is teaching them humility. And so we see arguments like this in other gospels as well. And as always, we, we shouldn't be surprised by these discussions happening. This is human nature on display, isn't it? There is status to be had by following Jesus. Look around you at the crowds. The people are flocking to Jesus, and you're one of his disciples. Not only are you one of his followers, but you've been sent out. You have been doing miracles. You've had people listening to you talk about Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so we had to have seen this lack of humility coming. In other arguments about who is the greatest in other Gospels, we have seen some of them jockeying, uh, some of the disciples jockeying for position, saying, hey, we want to be at your right and on your left when we come into your kingdom. Uh, we even have one account, and I think it's in Matthew, where the mother of James and John comes to Jesus and asks for her sons to be at Jesus' right hand and his left hand when he comes into his kingdom, that's not humility at all. That's seeking power. And despite the humility of of Jesus, there was a lot of status seeking going on among the disciples and other people. And as you consider these stories of these arguments and these requests, you have to wonder, what did this look like, right? Do they start out with a little bragging about how great the miracle they did yesterday was? I bet you've never healed this or that. I did that yesterday. I'm the best disciple. Jesus obviously loves me most. Uh, Did they descend into comments like, well, Jesus likes me best, so I should have the highest status here. I'm the greatest. These are petty conversations, and my curious nature wants to know just how petty they got. And this specific incident given to us in Luke here is is just really one sentence. But it's a powerful sequence of words because it shows us that the disciples just aren't tracking with the teaching of Jesus or with what he has been saying about the trajectory that his mission on earth is on. No one wants to be the greatest and the one most associated with someone who is going to be executed. And while we are many chapters from the crucifixion of Jesus, we know how the story plays out. It's it's why we're here, right? We know what's going to happen. When Jesus is arrested, what happens? Are the disciples running and saying, I'm the greatest, I'm connected with him, I want to be with him. No, they scatter. Peter denies Jesus. No one wants to be the greatest when suffering's on the line. Period. No one wanted to be the greatest on Good Friday, did they? Not one. But here we are, 
We're a ways out from that day, and, and Jesus teaches them what, is act, what it actually means to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It isn't status, it isn't power, and it isn't sitting at his right or his left hand in his kingdom. To be greatest in the kingdom of God means that you're the least. And as we move on to our final point in the final two verses here, you have to wonder what went through the disciples' minds when Jesus did stuff like this. Because it tells us that he knows the reasoning of their hearts, that Jesus is fully aware of this conversation that they're having. You'd think they would know better than to do stuff like this. It's like, guys, this is Jesus. Why are you having this conversation? What are you thinking? He's going to know and he's going to chastise you. You know he doesn't want you talking like this. Just keep quiet about your desires for status because this isn't going to end well for you. He's going to tell you what's what. And as Jesus addresses this issue, he takes a child and he pulls this child by his side. Now this is rather interesting, isn't it? Because doesn't the argument that they've been having feel rather childless? I mean, this is a childless argument they've been having. It's the kind of, I'm the best talk. That's something that you might expect coming from kids striving to be the captain of a schoolyard pick before a kickball game. Not something you expect from grown adult men who are followers of Jesus, this model of humility. This is not the conversation you expect the disciples of Jesus to have. So the image that Jesus gives us here by bringing a child next to him is actually rather significant when we know the way that children were viewed in that culture in that time. Now, while family succession was important and children were a blessing, they were generally considered to be insignificant. They didn't have much to say. They didn't have much status in society. And on top of that general cultural approach, it would have been particularly surprising that Jesus, a rabbi, gave a child the time of day. Because in an ancient rabbinic commentary, it was said that talking to children would bring a man to ruin. For Jesus, a rabbi with a significant following, to not only address but, but put a child by his side would have really gotten their attention. And it drives home the big point of Jesus to his followers. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me and receives him who sent me. How you treat a child is an indicator for how you receive Jesus. If you only seek status and rubbing shoulders with the people in position of power and influence, then you aren't understanding what Jesus is doing. He isn't after being well-liked. He isn't seeking to be the coolest guy at all the public gatherings. And he isn't running for public office and hoping for political donations from the social elites. Jesus is not climbing a social ladder. In fact, he's doing the exact opposite. Because look at who he upsets the most. He is living out what he is telling his disciples by bringing this child to him. Instead of seeking to be loved by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the Roman governors, what is he doing? He's bringing a child to him. He's more concerned about the least than with the greatest. And you and I can understand this message here. That humility is what God desires. We are to care for others and, and think of others before ourselves. To be great in the kingdom of God 
And in the eyes of God is taking the lowest place and giving honor to someone else. It is when we would deny ourselves and seek to help the weak and those who are not able to help themselves that God is most glorified. If the disciples want to be great in the kingdom, they need to stop seeking status and fame, and instead, they need to receive the least. They should be racing to serve instead of climbing and stumbling all over themselves to get to the top of the ladder. We should be looking out for those who are overlooked instead of hoping we will be noticed as being significant. And you know where I'm going with this. You know this is our point of application, isn't it? Because this is hard. This is difficult. As I've been pointing out the whole time as as we progress through this passage, we don't do any of this naturally. We naturally want to be in the in crowd. We ignore and avoid those who we see as being beneath us. This is a real struggle. But this call is not just something that Jesus wanted 12 guys wandering around ancient Palestine with him to do. He calls each and every one of us to receive the least of these. But it is absolutely vital that we understand where this servant's heart, where this humility actually comes from. Because we're not humble because we're called to be humble. We don't come to an attitude of true servanthood because we're commanded to do it. You parents, did you, have you ever told your kids to be nice to someone? How did that work out? Right? They might have behaved better towards whoever it was you wanted them to be nice to, but were their hearts really in it? Did they really desire to be kind to that person? Did they really have a heart that cared for them? If we desire to have servants' hearts and to have hearts for the least of these, then we need to root ourselves in the grace that God has first shown to us in Christ. As we have seen, he humbled himself. He modeled for us what it means to be a servant. He left the glory of heaven and he took on our flesh. He suffered and died to bear the wrath of God for our sin. And when we immerse ourselves in these truths, we will understand something absolutely vital that will give us a heart for the least and a desire to serve them. Because we realize that in our sin, we were the least. We were the least. Our status before God was nothing. And yet God in Christ came to us in his life, death, and resurrection. We have been given new status in Christ. We are the forgiven people of God. We have gone from low esteem to the highest standing in the kingdom of heaven as blood-bought, adopted children of the king. From the least to the greatest. And when we grasp and when we lay hold of that reality, we will have hearts of gratitude and we will desire to serve as we have been served by Christ. We desire to be the least, to help the least, because God helped us when we were dead in our sin and unbelief. And so this is a particularly poignant passage and application for us as we find ourselves 
near thanksgiving. Because to give thanks means that we acknowledge that we are not capable of doing this on our own. To give thanks means that we believe that we were in a position of need and we acknowledge that someone greater than ourselves has reached out to us and has blessed us. And so as we are thankful in the coming days, may we desire to reach out to the least of these that we might remember how God has first reached out to us in Christ. That in our humble estate, he came to us and elevated us. That he made us children of God. That he made us great in the kingdom of heaven. So may we be the least that God might be glorified by our service. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.